0: Let us now turn again to the Lord in prayer, ask him to bless uh, the reading and hearing of his holy, inerrant, infallible word for us this day. Almighty God, help us to turn our hearts and our attention to you and hear what you will speak through the power of your Holy Spirit, for you speak peace to your people through Christ our Lord. Amen. We're continuing our sermon series through Selected Miracles of Jesus this morning. We are in chapter 14 of Matthew's Gospel. I think you will find uh, this miracle to be very familiar. But I pray that the Lord will give us fresh eyes to see it this morning. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If references in popular culture mean anything at all, then this is probably one of the most well-known miracles both to Christians and non-Christians alike. And it is truly spectacular, isn't it? There have been others who have been said to have the ability to heal and to cast out demons. Who else in human history, though, has been said to have the ability to walk on water. Jesus is unique in this regard, which is why this miracle is considered a demonstration of doing the impossible, hence the idiom in the English language about walking on water. For instance, you might be looking over a job description that has a ridiculous list of requirements and duties, and think to yourself... They must be looking for someone who can walk on water. But is that all this miracle is about? It's just a demonstration of doing the impossible? Think about it. This miracle, more than any of the other miracles, seems to be just for show. No one is healed. No demons are cast out. No one is raised from the dead. No bellies are filled. All the other miracles are for the sake of others, bringing healing and restoration, providing sustenance and salvation, but not this one. You see, the disciples don't seem to be in imminent danger of drowning in the storm that was battering their boat as they did when Jesus calmed the storm. In that story, the disciples are crying out for rescue, indicating a very real and present threat. According to Mark and John, though, it appears that the disciples were simply facing a strong headwind at the time of this miracle. Mark tells us, and he, Jesus, saw that they, the disciples, were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. It doesn't say the wind was breaking apart their boat or that they were about to capsize. There is no indication in Matthew, Mark, or John's Gospels where we find this miracle recorded that the disciples are at any risk for anything other than exhaustion. So couldn't Jesus have just found an alternative route to meet up with the disciples later? Couldn't he have simply waited until morning when the winds had subsided to row across to Bethsaida? Why was it that he decided to go to them on the water. Was it for the purpose of dazzling them with his power? Was Jesus just flexing his spiritual muscles showing them what he could do? Certainly he wouldn't We couldn't blame him if this were the case. He had just finished performing the miracle of feeding the crowd of more than 5000 people and if you remember it was a miracle in which the disciples had difficulty seeing beyond the material. They simply couldn't figure out how they were going to feed all of these people with the meagre resources they had available to them. There wasn't enough bread. There wasn't enough fish. There wasn't enough money. They didn't understand the power of the one they had in their midst. And so maybe Jesus is just pounding the point to explain the extent of his power since the disciples have been a little slow to understand in that regard and we could interpret the miracle in this way we could in doing so stand in awe of Jesus's power of his ability to do the impossible at his ability to defy the laws of nature but I hope to show this morning that there's a lot more to this miracle than simply a demonstration of Jesus's power And it might not be a revelation of Jesus's compassion and mercy for the hurting and hungry of the world as we find in the other miracles, but Jesus is revealing some very important aspects of who he is here. And more to the point, what Jesus is revealing about himself is for the sake of encouraging his disciples. It was encouragement that would serve them well as they fulfilled their calling as his people, his body, his church, sent into the midst of a dark and chaotic world. But not just for them, for us as well. It's a message of his comforting presence and his enabling power. And the message of this miracle is one that I believe that we, the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America, need to hear especially in the year 2020, in the midst of a pandemic, just days away from an election which seems to carry significant implication for the years ahead, during a moment in our nation's history where there seems to be a turning tide against the church and the proclamation of the gospel. Therefore, beloved, I don't think we can afford to miss the message of this miracle this morning. And the lessons start from the very beginning of the passage, verses 22 and 23. Immediately, he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Jesus had been trying to get some time of solitude and silence after the death of John the Baptist. But the crowds had taken a shortcut, if you remember, and arrived ahead of where he was going, setting up the feeding of the 5,000. Now, the conclusion of the feeding, Jesus makes arrangements to finally get the personal time of rest with his heavenly Father that he so desired. And we can think that this is all that is happening here. Certainly, it isn't a bad thing to recognize the stress that the gospel is placing on finding time to rest and to pray. If Jesus needs to pray, then so do we. John Bunyan once stated, we can do more than pray after we have prayed. But we cannot do more than pray until we have prayed. So here's my shameless plug for the prayer service this afternoon at three. If we have been all in a tizzy about coronavirus and the state of our nation and the election that we are in the midst of, then we should recognize our need to pray now more than ever. But if all we see is Jesus trying to get alone to pray here, then we miss the significance of what verse 22 is telling us. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Matthew is intentional to tell us that it was Jesus himself who put the disciples in the boat and sent them on their way. Mark, by the way, tells us the exact same thing. And where does it land them? It lands them in the middle of a storm facing a strong headwind. Do you understand? Jesus is the one who sent them into the storm all alone. And here's our first lesson. Obeying the commands of Jesus does not spare us from adversity. Obeying the commands of Jesus does not spare us from adversity. In fact, Jesus might just send us right into the heart of the storm. Following Jesus is not like boarding a luxury cruise liner in which it is all calm sailing, beautiful sunsets, relaxing strolls around the deck, and bountiful buffets. That's not how we grow as his disciples and fulfill our mission as his church. And this was a very valuable lesson for the disciples who would soon be sent into the world to fulfill the mission that Christ would give to them. Go to the ends of the earth and make disciples of all nations. They mustn't be under any illusion as they go. They mustn't believe that there will be no difficulty. It was a dark world that they were being sent out into. It was a chaotic world. And if we read through the Acts of the Apostles, then we know the challenges that awaited the disciples on this mission. It was a world in which they would be met with a great deal of opposition, a strong headwind, if you will. And they were going without Jesus being physically present with them. What would have happened if they had thought that Jesus had sent them, that because they thought that he had sent them, that because he had put them in the boat, it meant smooth sailing? My guess is that none of us would be sitting here today. The gospel would have never gotten this far. But what would happen if we, believing that placing faith in Christ and obeying his commandments, delivered up us to a life of ease? One in which God protects us from every hardship and pain. Unfortunately, I think that there are many who sell Christianity as the cure to all troubles. And there are many who believe the Christian life promises a problem-free existence. And when the difficulties come, when life doesn't go as expected, they turn from the Jesus they place their faith in because he isn't delivering. He must not exist. And the truth is, he doesn't. Dearly beloved, the Jesus we find in Matthew 14 is the Jesus of the Bible. The one who puts his disciples in a boat and sends them into the path of a storm. This is the real Jesus. As a great Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, stated, it is no new thing for Christ's disciples to meet with storms in the way of their duty. So we mustn't be shocked by the storms. In fact, we should anticipate them. Again and again in the Gospels, Jesus tells his disciples to expect difficulty. The world that opposed him wouldn't all of a sudden become friendly to his followers who bear witness to him. It is something that we need to remind ourselves of today. We have lived in a nation in which it has been relatively easy to be a Christian, at least to claim to be a Christian and to hold Christian values. And because of this, we have been lulled into thinking that this is the norm. The Scripture tells us otherwise, though. The norm is actually opposition, a steady and strong headwind, hard rowing in deep darkness. But before we get discouraged, here's what the disciples discover. <clears throat> when we are within the will of the Lord, then we are under the care of the Lord. And this is our second lesson. Matthew tells us, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus comes to their aid. And a stormy sea isn't going to stop him. they've been in the boat at least nine hours at this point. They should have reached the other side of the lake well before that time. But they've been struggling to make progress. And Matthew tells us that they have been beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. We might feel like that sometimes. We are rowing with all of our might and it feels like we aren't moving forward hardly at all. In fact, we might feel as though we're being pushed backwards at times. The winds of the world are winning. But in the midst of the wind and rain and crashing waves, a figure appears. Now, the disciples don't know who it is. They are seeing at first and are terrified. What else could it be but a ghost? Who would have thought that anyone would appear walking on the water in the midst of a storm? Listen to what Matthew tells us, though. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Immediately. Immediately. Jesus isn't going to leave them in fear and confusion. He at once speaks, and what does he speak? Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, this doesn't come across in English very well, but what Jesus has said is this. Take heart. I am. This isn't a common, hello, it's just me. It's the divine self-revelation, the very same one that God speaks out of the burning bush to Moses, the very same one that God speaks to his people in exile through the prophet Isaiah. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk Through the fire you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. This divine revelation is the word that stands at the center of this passage. We find it in the 6th verse of 12 verses. There are about 90 Greek words preceding it and about 90 Greek words following it. I am. I am God. This is the word that Jesus speaks to his storm-tossed disciples who struggle to make progress. It is a word that Jesus continues to speak through the power of his Holy Spirit to his storm-tossed church through the ages. It's a word of encouragement, a word of assurance. I am. I am the sovereign God who reigns over all of creation. I am in control. I am present with you. I am caring for you. I am providing for you. I am redeeming you. This is a word that the church would need to understand in the years to come. They would need to understand as they faced challenges, as they traveled about relying on the Lord to provide for their next meal, the next place to rest their head, as they faced persecution, slander, beatings, imprisonment, death, as they stood before councils and kings, as they ministered in streets and synagogues, as they faced the poverty of the world around them, both material and spiritual. It was imperative that they understood that Jesus, the great I am, who had offered up his life to death for their salvation, was present with them. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God was in control and caring for them. Therefore, there was no need to fear whatever situation or circumstance they found themselves in. For faith in the great I am drives out all fear. It's something that the church today needs to understand and believe as well. There are many challenges that we face and it's easy to see nothing but the storm. It's easy to just grit our teeth and keep rowing against the headwind thinking that we must do this on our own. Or give in and give up, crushed by the challenges that we face. This miracle is meant to encourage us to recognize that Jesus is not sitting on the sidelines watching all of this play out, unwilling or unable to help. No, he shows up. Although perhaps we should realize what he's doing before he showed up. He was praying. And Jesus continues his ministry of prayer as he sits at God's right hand. And who is he praying for? Us. This is what the book of Hebrews tells us. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is praying for us. But he makes himself present to his disciples, and he makes himself present to us as well. This is what the miracle of walking on water is really about. It is about his presence. And there isn't anything that will keep him from us. There are no real obstacles in Jesus' way. Not a storm, not three or four miles of deep water. He comes to us. And with his presence comes his power. It is given to his church, not just for their comfort, but also to enable them to do great things in his name despite the opposition. And we see this in the second part of this miracle. Peter, in response to Jesus' appearing and revealing himself to his disciples, responds to Jesus, if it's you, Lord, command me to come to you on the water. Now, I know that Peter is often the impulsive one, which frequently gets him into trouble. And that much is clear from the gospel narrative. But perhaps we shouldn't be so quick to see Peter's eagerness to walk on water to Jesus in this sort of negative light. Notice what Peter does and doesn't do here. It's very important. Peter doesn't just simply jump out of the boat and try to run to Jesus. Rather, he seeks the command of Jesus. He asks Jesus' permission to come to him on the water. Lord, command me to come to you. Peter isn't being reckless here. He longs to be where his Lord is and to do what his Lord does, but he also understands that Jesus must first give his blessing Otherwise, any attempt to be where Jesus is and do what Jesus does will be doomed from the start. And there are lessons to be learned by the church here as well. The first of these is that Peter gives us a model of faithful action. Rather than doing something and only asking the Lord to bless our work later, we should seek God's will first before acting, knowing that if he has called us somewhere, that he will surely bless it. But how often do Christians today act on something that they think is a good and God-honoring idea without actually seeking out God's will beforehand? Just assuming that the Lord will bless their work because they were doing it in the name of Jesus. There has been much done in the name of Jesus that has failed miserably. Not because it wasn't a good idea, not because it wasn't seeking to honor God, but because it was done without first seeking the Lord's calling. For instance, we see in places like Acts 16, where Paul and his companions are kept from going where they want to go, and they end up in Macedonia. Was it a bad idea to try to proclaim the gospel in Asia? Of course not. Except this wasn't where God wanted them. Only after proper prayer and discernment, only after waiting upon the Lord to give us clarity, should we step out in faith. And this leads to the second lesson. God always enables what he commands. As St. Augustine said, command what you will and then give what you command. Command what you will and then give what you command. And this is what the Lord does, isn't it? Jesus says to Peter, come. And look at the rest of the verse, verse 29. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water to Jesus let's just stop right there. We like to rush ahead to Peter sinking, but just let the words of verse 29 sink in for a moment. Who in history has walked on water? Jesus has, and Peter. If we go right to Peter sinking, then we miss what happened first. Peter walked on the water. He was the only other human in history to experience the excitement, the exhilaration, the elation of walking on water because he was the only disciple in the boat who had the courage to seek Jesus's command and the faith to believe that he could do what Jesus had called him to do. In simply stepping out of the boat and onto the water, he overcame any fear with faith and dispelled any doubt that walking on the water was simply impossible. And this is a lesson for those who have faith to believe it. Where Jesus commands, he also enables. I wonder if we read and sought to follow Jesus' commands in, say, the Sermon on the Mount. In the same way Peter received in faith Jesus' command to join him on the water. If we wouldn't experience Jesus's enabling grace in the same way Peter did that night. Jesus is present with us and he wants to enable us, empower us to do what he does. This miracle is demonstrating that to us in the reality that it isn't just Jesus who walks on the water, it is Peter as well. What an important message to the church that will be sent into the world to carry on the mission of Jesus. Not only proclaiming the gospel, but demonstrating and giving witness to it indeed. But verse 29 isn't the end of the story, is it? It is followed by verse 30. But When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to seek, he cried out, Lord, save me. Unfortunately, Peter only walks on the water momentarily. Delight very quickly gives way to Distress. And at this point, we can criticize Peter, how foolish it was to take his eyes off Jesus and focus on the storm around him. He was already doing the impossible. Why did he falter? But dearly beloved, this is real life, isn't it? It isn't sugar-coated at all. We can do great things through Christ who strengthens us. And Christ calls us to do great things, things well beyond our strength and ability, but we easily get overwhelmed by the waves and wind of the world around us, and we sink in disbelief and despair. This miracle provides a very vivid reminder that we cannot sustain our own faith. God must uphold us. God must persevere us. Daily, we are battered by the wind and the waves of the world, and it doesn't take much for us to become distracted or feel overwhelmed and defeated. So the disciple of Jesus not just the miserable sinner, is constantly crying out, Lord, save me. We are constantly sinking and reaching out for help. But notice Jesus's response. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Again, we have the word immediately. Again and again, the message of the gospel is that where there is need, Jesus is there immediately. So as one biblical scholar put it, to the believing one, Jesus gives a share in his power. To the doubting and sinking one, he stretches out his helping hand. Even for the disciple, there are times of doubt. Doubt remains a part of our experience while we are on this side of eternity. Even in the resurrection narrative later in Matthew's gospel, we read the 11 remaining disciples were gathered with the risen Lord before the Great Commission. And it says this, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. This miracle, though, establishes for us that Jesus is present through it all and does not abandon us. He does not leave us in our doubts. He offers his hand to us to rescue us, to restore us to faith. Jesus does here offer a word of rebuke and encouragement to Peter to put away his doubt and to trust and said, but Jesus only scolds after he has saved. And I think this word is also meant for all of the disciples in the boat as well, who in their doubt never even attempted to get out of the boat as Peter did. Jesus, though, is understanding of our weakness and gracious to save us time and time again. Matthew then tells us, and when they, that is Jesus and Peter, got into the boat, the wind ceased. We might wonder here why Jesus didn't command the storm to cease from the very beginning. But I think there is a very clear answer to this question. Jesus is teaching. It's a lesson to a church that will face opposition and hardship. He wants us to understand through this miracle that his saving presence does not consist in banishing storms, but in being present in them. It's an extremely hard lesson for the church, but a very important one. We want Jesus to show up. We want Jesus to show up and end our pain, to end our suffering, to end our hardship but he doesn't and it isn't that he hasn't shown up it is that he has a purpose in our difficulty our suffering produces glory It produces glory in us as we go through trials and grow through trials in our faith. Our faith being refined by the fire and strengthened as we set our sight more and more on the unseen. Our suffering produces endurance. Our endurance produces character. Our character produces hope in us, as Paul says in Romans 5, and that hope does not disappoint. It produces glory for God. When we go through difficult trials, when our weakness is revealed, God strength comes shining through and his glory is on full display. So this miracle reveals the presence of Jesus. It reveals the enabling power of Jesus. And both of these things are vital for the church to understand as she prepares for the, as she prepares for and undertakes her mission following the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. She will be sent into the midst of a sea of chaos and confusion, into a dark world that appeared so foreboding. And it would be easy to shrink in fear in this sort of environment, to give up and let the wind blow her wherever it willed. But Jesus encouraged otherwise. He did then, and he does today. He is present with us in the midst of the deep waters we find ourselves in. And he is enabling us through his power to live for his glory. Dearly beloved, don't let the storm distract you. Jesus is here. Keep your eyes on him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the great I am. And we thank you that even when we pass through the waters, that they will not overwhelm us. You are here present with us, saving us, redeeming us, empowering us to live for your glory. Lord, help us this day and in days and weeks and months and years ahead, Lord, to place our faith in you and the salvific work of Jesus Christ done on a cross for us, Lord. Help us to truly believe that you who did not spare your own son, Lord, is unwilling to give us all things. Help us to know and to trust, to cling tightly to the promises that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. For we pray this in his holy and precious name. Amen in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ let us now stand and affirm what we believe Christian in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father in the life lock-